1: more dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays
2: for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival
0: you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm Good evening, yes indeedy, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, which is 3RRR's weekly gathering of um, minds of optimistic nihilism, if, uh, if that indeed not do the thing, we'll she'll see a bit later on. Uh, Bush is my name, and with me in the studio this evening is Katie Dundas. Hello, Katie. Oh, hello. How you be?
2: You look very well, Bushy.
0: Thanks, you do too. You look like well, you've got this magnificent colourful um, arrangement on. Arrangement. Arrangement which you just said as you arrived here that you made record time. I did. A, a meeting in Docklands to the studios of Three Triple R I
2: forgot I was in Docklands and then I came out of the building and I was like, I'm oh, really far away. Yeah. So how <laughs> am I gonna get there in time? And I put my electric bike up to full throttle.
0: No 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 and no. And no, I got a no, no. bike
2: Docklands, like the really far away but yeah. up to here so the top of um nicholson street in like 23 minutes
0: that's pretty awesome yeah yeah uh did you forget that you were in docklands because of the overwhelming um (laughs) the overwhelming soul of the place
2: oh well (laughs) i was just in a building and then you know just you know yeah just i just didn't think properly about the time bushy
0: well you would have looked incredible with um I can't describe. It's just the most all, magnificent. All top. the colours happening. All the colours happening, um, and moving at high speed. It would have been pretty awesome. And Jed McCartney, you're in those strangers to cycling. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Bushy. It would, you would look like a rainbow with all those colours. Absolutely. Mm. Are you hey, you're only the only one without knee bike? I'm going to have to get one, aren't I? Yes, because they are fun. Yeah. They're super, super fun. And their detractors will say to you, What's the party party? And you say, Oh, we'll have a shot if you're so unhappy about it. And then they come back from around the corner and they're grinning from ear to ear. Like no, no, no. The point is that you can use them to ride to work and not get hot and sweaty and then exercise on the way home if you want to, unless you're running late for Triple R and it's full throttle.
2: Oh, you get addicted to the throttle like me.
0: Yeah, yeah. The throttle's good. We should have an off air chat about the throttle. It's brilliant. This evening's guest is a novel guest with a novel topic. Professor Chris Williams. Dr Chris Williams researches social, cultural and technical aspects of urban agriculture at the Burnley campus of Melbourne University. Among his many interests he runs the Novel Crops Project which identifies less widely grown food plants for cultivation in Melbourne gardens such as sweet potato and taro. The project is trying to keep people excited about the idea of edible landscapes and gardens that look great and inviting but also provide food welcome chris williams
1: yeah thanks bushy good to be here i'm not a professor but thanks for promoting me but no adam, yeah. adam put that in a note <laughs> so he gets a one <laughs>
0: slab penalty you yeah. will be now that you're on the show you've, now you've uh, been on the show yeah. the s- Pro- expect the letter monday we, cool. ha- we hand them out willy nilly it's very yeah, good so dr dr chris williams
2: chris just told me he was often accused of being the sweet potato guy
0: <laughs> <laughs> are you sweet potato that's, that's not a bad thing i'm, I'm happy with that yeah, you take what you can get in this world. So, Chris, what's uh, what's your backstory? How did you come to uh, be Dr. Chris Williams and
1: working on this novel food project that we're going to discuss this evening? Yeah, so a uh, chance to reflect on my, uh, my bio. Um, so, I come from, a, a, I guess, a family of gardeners, mm-hmm. eastern suburbs of Melbourne, always keen on growing uh, veggies, uh, and uh, have done that from a young age, had a... Classic backyard gardening business, you know the HT Holden pulling the daggy blue box trailer around, nice. mow and blow as we say in the game. Yeah. Um, and even even in the early 90s, tried to have a sidearm of that business, which I called very cheesily "Growing Places Organic Gardening Services." That's good. It, yeah, I know. I've actually handballed that name to a student. I've said you can have that. That's my gift to you. But in that time, despite the popularity of permaculture that was in one of its big phases um, and, and plenty of people doing organic growing, it didn't do very well. It really was the mow and blow and the kind yep. of straight horticulture that kept me employed. So I think I was ahead of my time, I like to say. yeah, um, Because there are people now, like Karen Sutherland, who's no doubt been on the show. Um, She's, or, on the <laughs> She's on the list. She's on the list, yeah. You know, who are, who are making a living now. Oh, and like Adam, of course. Yep. So plenty of businesses now who actually install food gardens for people. So... After that, I actually went to Burnley when it was still its own horticultural college and um, thinking that I was going to be, I don't know, looking again at at food growing, but I got sort of shot out into the world of uh, ecological restoration and conservation Mm. and uh, worked um, for a few years for what is now called Conservation Volunteers Australia, did lots of environmental projects and developed an environmental education tour in outback New South Wales, which was incredible fun got to meet the Prime Minister of the Day, Paul Keating. Oh, yeah. He had a bad handshake, I have to say. Oh. Anyway, it's another story. But, um, and then that led me to do a PhD looking at, at farming landscapes, and Guy got involved with reintroducing a, a couple of endangered marsupials through that, but really talking to farmers about why they were trying to restore their, their farms in terms of biodiversity through the National Landcare Programme. So... Then I worked in that area of of how do we have conservation on private land with farmers but also other landholders and then after a while, and I I worked for Trust for Nature in Victoria, which is a um, a small charity based in Victoria and got to meet people from all over the world looking at that issue. But then, I don't know, the the call of the suburbs or something, horticulture in Melbourne called called to me again, especially around uh, edible landscapes. Mm. And I've always been from childhood interested in perennial vegetables. Okay. Sounds like a strange thing to be into. No, but oh. I just remember the childhood task, the chore of weeding, especially from my mum, used to drive me mad. My grand was slightly cooler, because she was one that would always push growing the veggies. And when she told me that these beans we were planting were seven year beans, and I said, What do you what do you mean by seven years? She yeah. said, Oh, it means they're gonna come up every year for seven years. On their, on their own ground. Like, we don't have to put them in. She goes, yeah, that's right. And I just oh, thought, that's awesome. And then, done. and then rhubarb as well. She said, oh, no, we just plant this, then we pick it, and it's just there. Yeah. And that, honestly, I just thought it was a, a switch in my brain that said, how can we have gardens that we eat that are more or less in place rather than this, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. I love digging and sowing and, and annual crops, but mm. I still, from that childhood experience, being told about seven-year beans, scarlet runners, as we now call them, uh, I thought, this is something I want to pursue.
0: Mm. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, there, yeah, there is a greater sort of sense of stability, isn't it? And the, the, the achievement of just doing something once every few years is is much nicer if you're in that constant uh, labour,
1: isn't it? Yeah, and I think, too, that um, never discount an inherent and natural human laziness. So if you're a bit behind <laughs> your schedule with your garden, all of a sudden you see those... Beans climbing up that trellis without having to do Mm. anything—that's a good feeling. That in itself can inspire you to get going and think, "Okay, they're on their way. I've got to get into the rest of the stuff now."
2: Mm. Perennials are so good. I've been trying to switch out my backyard for all perennials, and it just suits my (laughs) nature—lazy.
0: Well, hops are a good one. Hops—if people want to be inspired, you know, plant one hop rhizome and then
2: hops are so easy. Yeah,
0: they thrive on neglect. I mean, imagine how good mm -hmm. they'd do if you gave them effort. Yeah.
2: Well, this year we actually tied them up um, so they're able to go up something rather than just growing in a big heap.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what
2: happened last year. Sorry, hops.
0: Indeed. Well, the, the, we're going to discuss uh, in greater detail the, the novel crops project mm. that you're running. And, okay, so two of the things that have come up uh, when we've been looking into this project is the idea that here in Melbourne we'll be potentially growing sweet potato and taro, plants that are more regularly attributed with uh uh, the subtropics and the equatorial tropics yeah. well why don't we sort of take a step back from that then yeah. we'll have a bit of a, as a horticultural uh, chat to uh, as a primer mm. can you talk to us a bit about the key differences you know, between the plants that evolve in the equatorial zones and those tropical zones versus the stuff that we're more familiar with down here in temperate Melbourne maybe speak to you know, why those plants evolve where they do
1: and what effect the climate, the rain, the heat etc. has on sure. The, Wow, this is a vast and interesting topic. I think the one thing to say straight away is that many of our conventional vegetables are tropical. Many, okay. Right. So tomatoes, chilies, eggplants, many, most beans except for broad beans are in fact tropical, subtropical species. So really all – I mean – the absolute truth is the European diet before Europeans decided to go and take revenge on the world, and you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why they did it. Was dire, absolutely, really. Mm. I mean, um, uh, you know, sometimes students say to me, I, I, "I don't want to eat some of your stuff because I'm actually have a, I'm Irish origin and we only eat potatoes, no. only for four or five hundred years." Well. About, yeah, since about, around about 1750, in fact. Yeah, right. So, so, and that's strictly speaking a tropical plant as well. Yep. But obviously at high altitude. So look. So really, the story of, of modern uh, vegetables is this absorbing of all these plants from so many, especially from South America, into into our diet. That does did require does require breeding varieties that that would be pushed further and further or to higher latitudes. Sorry. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, meaning. At, at sort of the latitude of Italy which, uh, and uh, in, in the northern hemisphere and, and in places like Melbourne in the south where you're growing tomatoes are mostly outdoors, although increasingly commercial varieties are <coughs> grown undercover as well. So, But, look, some some tropical species that we don't normally grow here, they're just adapted to constant uh, sunshine, high heat and, and usually quite often seasonally very high rainfall, which we don't have.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so... <coughs> So take sweet potatoes, for example. They're, they're super adapted to uh, constant temperatures above 25 degrees. And, you know, the, the, the question becomes if you want to grow that plant, looking at Melbourne's climate and saying, do we have some kind of window, which is our growing season really, from late spring through to late autumn, to grow, to grow something that has actually evolved either at the equator, at low land... Uh, you know, close to sea level where it's used to more blasting constant heat?
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. The yeah, answer is it's, yes.
0: And is, yeah. is, is one of the issues there, I guess, the consistency of heat because even though Melbourne can get those very hot spells, we yes. generally have those overnight right. drops as well and
1: that's going to have some effect on soil temperature, isn't it? It is. So what I've tried to do is just look at the things that – probably people would like to grow look at look at whether they uh, you know because they're delicious usually so something like a sweet potato and then say look at the those exact factors that you're talking about are the overnight drops of temperature going to reduce yield so much that it's not worth growing and then just sort of teasing out the the best cultivation practices to to maximize yield so the reality is yeah it's not just the overall you know quantum of of Average temperatures. You're right. If we have like a five day heat wave and then it drops down to 20 again, that's not ideal. Mm. But over the overall growing season, particularly if you have a warm autumn, you'll, you'll actually get very high yields. Oh, wow. You just won't have a crop twice a year. Like yeah, yeah, in Queensland. Yeah, gotcha.
2: And is, yeah. does the Melbourne climate vary enough across the suburbs to make some to make like I don't know Carlton the prime sweet potato <laughs> growing? Yeah, of I, I often
1: <laughs> wonder if we could ever get to the stage of having like a terroir concept for our suburbs, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the Frankston terroir of, uh, you know, heirloom tomatoes. Well, rainfall certainly, right? So obviously the rain increases the further east you go, so therefore you, you're going to need supplementary irrigation, um, mm-hmm. so that's an issue. Obviously you need a water supply uh, and it can be uh, consistently a little bit hotter out west really the key factor for some of these things is going to be, some of these plants is going to be winter survival in the ground dealing with low temperatures.
2: And what's the point of growing these plants if we don't have the ideal climate for it?
1: But I think that's the point I was trying to make when I was saying that so many of our mainstream vegetables, this is not their ideal climate anyway, and we're Mm. so used to them, we don't think, oh, tomatoes actually is not the ideal climate. It just happens to be for four or five months of the year. Mm. So eggplant the same i mean people used to say eggplant was very marginal in melbourne which is kind of easy. you still need that you do need that heat mm. but because of climate change and urban heat island effect some of these mainstream vegetables that we do want are becoming easier to grow here can you chat a yeah. bit about um, some of our listeners will know some way
0: about the urban heat island effect because yeah. that does seem to be um you know if, if we think about permaculture principles and mm. working with what you've got then um you know, that heat island effect is what drives people crazy through the summer mm. when they can't sleep. But in terms yeah. of being able to grow a diversity of foods, it can be quite
1: a useful tool. Can you speak a bit about what that means? Yeah, so it, it, it tends to mean that the the overnight drop of temperature that you're talking about won't be as severe. Mm. So the, the temperature, the the release of heat at night gives a sort of, a sort of heat cushioning effect so that it's not actually getting that... It, the temperature's just not dropping as much. Mm. And that's really suits some species more than others. Yeah. But just going back to the winter thing, I mean, I guess, I mean, I love perennial vegetables because of this laziness thing, but in the end, I'm still a gardener. I think sometimes there's a, you know, you still have to manage and get to know your plants and yeah. and observe them. So with taro, for example, a lot of people would know as elephant ears, so you've got these magnificent, gigantic leaves, and there's different varieties. And that's one of the key things I'm working on as well, is that, you know, you Anyway, there's different. There's lots of different types of taro. There's lots of different types of sweet potato, but but one of the things is that you you have to be you have to be kind of hopeful sometimes because this year we had quite a few frosts. You know, I'm in Alpington, so it's actually definitely a bit colder to answer your question, Kate, than say Burnley where I work. The taro was looking was about two meters high, gigantic meter long leaves, pumping out the the corms, the tubers that you eat. Even in late June it was looking all right, a bit mm. tatty from a few cold nights. And then suddenly we had that first frost and it just it sort of hung in there, started getting floppy, and then there was another frost the next night and it just turned to sludge within about three or four days. And mm. I thought, wow, this will be the year that I'll know whether the tubers themselves will rot, but sure enough they didn't. So I've been literally probably about 120 kilos of taro coming out nice. of it. So. Okay, and then I thought, well, maybe they'll st- at the end of winter they'll rot some of them, the ones I haven't eaten. But no, they are just powered back even in September. Now that's a fully tropical plant, yeah. so sometimes it, that's been that's proved to me it's worth experimenting. So sure, if you if you want that lovely elephant here aesthetic all year, no, you're not going to have it. You have to deal with the vision of winter hellscape sludge, <laughs> yes. right? It's not going to do it for everybody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. right. But as long as you know that's not a sign to panic... So you have to start developing kind of notes and instructions about these things, like don't panic. It, yeah, it, Is that to do with ground temperature as well as... Like, yeah. Are we not getting,
0: like, the, the ground getting as cold through winter as it used to, or, or, what,
1: or yeah, is it no effect at all? No, no, that's a really good point. I must admit I don't have sort of, you know... Um, actual figures on that but the soil still gets pretty cold Mm. Um, and again that's why when you're testing whether things are going to overwinter or not as they say in the literature that is an important factor but for example you know the course of the soil meaning like a sandy soil should if it's exposed to sunlight be a little bit warmer over winter but I'm growing this taro in a kind of basalt clay loam which gets really cold and it's still surviving
2: Is taro like a sweet potato? What is taro?
1: Well, Kate, no. <laughs> um, it's um, tarot is uh, related to arum lilies, right? So it's in the. Yeah, no? Um, the big white. We, have a, we have a cliche that landscape architects don't know anything about plants. And it's, oh, it's, right. good, it's good to see the stereotype. So. I, know, I know more
2: about <laughs> Scottish plants. Nah,
1: that's an out. Um, well, actually, it's regarded almost certainly as the first cultivated food plant. Okay. Yeah. So the Fertile Crescent has to uh, take bronze medal now. Ah. Yeah. It's all about um, taro, really.
2: So what's it look like? Anyway, so... Well, Does it look like el- a sweet potato?
1: No. So taro's like a... You want me to describe the, the actual product now? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, how can I describe... Like, the big ones from the Pacific that you'll see in Melanesia and uh, Polynesia are like big clubs, strangely enough. The stem, when they cut the leaves off, which this giant elephant ears, you end up with this sort of big, long, gigantic tuber with a sort of stalk on it still. I can't, I can't describe it other than like a mini club.
2: Sounds like a sweet
0: potato. We might have to Google a picture
1: yeah. of it. It's time to go to a track. Oh, I should, just,
2: can I just ask, do yeah. you cook it like a potato?
1: Yes, you do. Oh, can we? we <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a real caveat with tarot which puts people off. Do I talk about that now or after the uh, track? Probably after the okay. track. Okay. We'll, do, we'll yeah, p- yeah. keep
0: the people um, celebrating yeah, for sure. more.
1: I'm Joel Salatin, known as the lunatic farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muck raking, compost loving, cud chewing, soil building, water cleaning vanguard of urban hillbilly radio, greening the apocalypse on radio 102.7,
2: free Triple R. And Triple R is where you are. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's in the Apocalypse and we are currently talking to Chris uh, Williams about his novel Crops Project. We're about to get onto that. We have just before um, we went to our song break, tried to um, <laughs> describe on air what mm. a taro looks like. And Chris is known as the Sweet Potato Man and uh, I've been looking at pictures of taros. They don't look unlike sweet potatoes, but more like a Jerusalem artichoke.
1: Yeah, my description before was pretty bad. That was of a specific market. Like a, a giant
2: club. It yeah. was more like a small potato. <laughs> no, there, there are different
1: varieties, and there are some little potato like ones, and then there are these big, enormous ones. So, um, but they're definitely. A sweet potato is more like a set of alien intestines, if you want to. <laughs> have you not heard this before? Because no. the ones we get in the supermarket are all kind of this perfect torpedo shape, but in actual fact, the way sweet potatoes grow is very bizarre. So there's this huge wastage of them because they twist and turn and do all sorts oh, of yeah. This cool, is, yeah, yeah. And hence the guys trying to make beer out of them in Bundaberg, which is where 80% of supermarket right. sweet potatoes come from. So, but but back to taro. Yes, I guess it is in the end just a a kind of potato-like thing. But here's the thing: they're absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. You have to peel them, but they have calcium oxalate crystals in them. Which are not toxic, no. but they will sting your mouth. <laughs> ah, the You're selling hate, it well here. I hate, here. Having, I, I, wait oh, I hate having to describe this. <laughs> but anyway, if you go to Fiji or, or wherever where they eat it, they'll, they'll be honest. I'll call it cheeky. If you feel a bit of a sensation, it's say, like, oh, mm. sorry, it's a bit cheeky, this one.
2: <laughs> so anyway, the, novel pro- the Novel Crops Project is about much more than just <clears throat> potatoes and taro. Yes. Tell
1: us about the Novel Crops Project. final point on tarot, there are plenty of varieties that don't have this issue and you just cook them like a potato and the job is done. That's Uh, the one I want everyone to eat before they will freak uh, out. (laughs) So um, Novel Crops Project. Yeah, so, I mean, Bushy said it earlier, the aim is to just investigate uh, or to diversify the range of plants we can grow in our food gardens, and our edible landscapes. There is definitely an aesthetic element to it, like to grow things that look really attractive if Mm -hmm. possible, even if it's just seasonally. Um, to link into the fact that we have this really, you know, extraordinary multicultural city, and so there are people coming from from countries where many of these plants would be, you know, perhaps normal, and and may not realise they can grow them here. Although you find out some mm. people do have a go. Yeah. And, and, and to look at, at this idea of perennial plants, plants that make gardening easier, that are multifunctional. So a sweet potato, for example, sure, you get these amazing tubers, but you can also eat the leaves. They're actually a really good source of protein. Yep. So they're a fantastic, very sustainable, easy-to-grow summer spinach. Well, protein's probably a really big thing uh, maybe
0: to touch on because I, yeah, every other day I'm flicking on whether I'm listening to Triple R or mm. Radio National or anything like that, um, people keep talking about the future need for protein and some sure. people are breeding insects and there's talk about where protein sources may or may not come from. So protein from plant sources, is, is that sort of something that you're looking into
1: in any specific way through this project? Um, I certainly take note of it. I've, I, I sort of have sympathy now for people who research one single crop their whole life. <laughs> my, my mind is just so full of these different plants and trying to tick off physiology, nutrition, yeah. cultivation, you know, country of origin, anyway. Um, so the short answer is yes to a degree. Mm. What I found out was that um, the, what happened was that when the Portuguese and the Spanish brought sweet potatoes to the rest of the world other than Polynesia in the 1600s, They took them to New Guinea, and of course, the people of New Guinea were really, you know, ancient, deeply experienced gardeners. Loved yams; had a whole massive culture around that and taro. And when they realised how easy sweet potato was to grow, they went, "Yeah, we'll have some of that. Take a cutting, stick it in the ground, off it goes."
0: Mm.
1: So that's now a centre of sweet potato diversity globally in a few hundred years. Right. So what they discovered was that you know you soon find out, yeah, it's you know massive carb crop, but low in protein. Yep. So you get that complementarity the people are eating the tuber and eating the leaves for protein yep now don't ask me how good the protein is you know this sort of issue of sure it's there but how much do you absorb yep. but that is definitely a sort of agroecological system in in new guinea where people are eating the whole plant to get protein and carbs mm. yeah but uh, so, talk uh, yep. us through
2: some of the. I've been, i visited your garden in Burnley and yes. walked around with you, and you gave me all of these really interesting little bits and bobs. I think I ate a leaf that tasted like bacon.
1: Ah, uh, yes, that's uh, Chinese cigar box cedar, so tuna sinensis. That's right. That's that's an extraordinary plant. So that's so one of the things you discover is that there are ornamental, so-called ornamental plants lurking in our. Gardens and suburbs that are, in fact, edibles. You're about to tell us it's the box hedge that people plant <laughs> no. on that. Oh, no. The thing that I just discovered in Brazil, I might just say very quickly they, they have actually quite a big novel crops movement in Brazil, mm. which is called, they're called punks. Yeah. <laughs> which is Plantas Alimenticias Now Convencine. Oh, my God. That's the word. Anyone who speaks Portuguese is going to be cringy on my behalf now. But anyway, it means unconventional food plants. And I was given this fantastic book, and moth vine, false choco, is, ah. is not edible. Yeah, right. Oh, anyway, for anyone, everyone knows this plant. Even if you're not a gardener, yeah. you've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's discuss the bacon leaf thing. Then. So, the bacon leaf plant. So, Tunis Sinensis is a, a, a tree that in, is deciduous and in spring has this flush of amazing pink leaves. And in China, that's a, a spring uh, veggie because it has this extraordinary garlicky, bacony flavour. And it's delicious. Beautiful. And it's, again, full of antioxidants, apparently. I looked, mm. I looked that up in a nutrition journal Bushy yeah so that's official Oh, you can throw antioxidants in yeah. anything and
0: sell them I mean, sure there's late model Ford Ranger got antioxidants <laughs> in it They yeah. kick in
1: at the fifty thousand K okay, mark isn't it I do sometimes think Bob's of joining the I don't know would that be the dark side of branding myself as an antioxidant you know yeah, yeah. Jump, jumping onto a novel crop superfood new superfood yeah yeah exactly. superfood so and so
0: talk, let's talk through a few, yeah. a few of the crops and and off air you were saying that there's a, a a good migrant background that have come to this project bringing uh yeah a diversity of crops from around the world and um yeah maybe speak a bit to that a little bit as well yeah
1: sure so so one of the aims of this novel crops project was to investigate what different communities in melbourne are growing or potentially would like to grow. And I, I was really inspired by a student of mine, Susie Scott, who now manages the um, kitchen garden uh, or the little mini farm that Fairshare have in, in uh, Victoria Park. And she was working with Karen Refugees in Bendigo and she'd found out that when they arrived they were given some land and they were really trying different things. And sometimes, even a bit alarmingly, they were eating stuff of street trees thinking because it looked like, uh, right? Like mm. even they were eating leaves of desert, desert ash, Fraxinus. Yeah. And when she told me that, I went into a panic, looked it up on a big database and found out, luckily, that it is edible. Okay. Right. Well, it's definitely not from Thailand, though, or from um, uh, from uh, Myanmar. So, anyway, um, so that got me really thinking. So, what, what are people, would they like to grow? What are they trying to grow? So, we got, we had a grant and we worked with the Carlton Neighbourhood Learning Centre to work with, you know, a very diver- diverse group of people uh, from, uh, you know, the big uh, public housing um, estates in the inner city, so we, we consulted with them and discovered, particularly from the Vietnamese who have been here, for, I guess, longer, that they've already, they're have already they trying lots of stuff and they sell mm. it in markets and it's all really happening. Yep. But the one thing that linked everybody, whether they're from Eritrea or from Thailand, even, even from the sort of Middle East itself, is ginger. Yeah. Everybody, everybody comes to Melbourne. It seems the rest of the world is very obsessed with ginger. Yeah. And they just think it's so incredibly expensive here. Yeah, right. And it is. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's $25, $30 a kilo. So we put quite a big effort into really working out the best ways to grow ginger in Melbourne. Mm. And that really does require a bit of a greenhouse. It doesn't have to be heated, a polytunnel, something just, or even I guess to a degree indoors or, or um, under heating, something just to get the ginger to shoot. Then, I've, you know, we've shown that you can actually grow fairly good ginger in Melbourne, mm. especially once the soil's warmed up. So that, you know, once you get to that sort of early December period, probably going to be a bit early this year given this heat wave, hmm. and then flowing through into autumn, it's amazing how productive it can be.
0: Is that something that could work well in a potted environment as well? I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of
1: uh, urban food growing people's yeah. access to actual land, land might sure. be great. Sure, it does grow well in pots. I guess the only thing is that, um, you know, one of the things I think that happens sometimes with pot growing is that if you have a black pot that just is absorbing heat, it mm-hmm. can actually get too hot. Yeah, you know, um, but certainly, yeah, pot, uh, ginger and turmeric seem to grow well in pots. Yep. But with with the the consultation with with people from the Carlton Neighbourhood Learning Centre, I think I mean a big revelation for me. And it's, you know, it's been around for a while. Is with bitter melon? Yeah, you know, I had never grown that before, and um, you know, people from uh, you know different backgrounds said, "No, it's we can we've grown it in Melbourne," and I'm actually now a massive fan. Yeah, the first taste, I thought, this is the most. Foul <laughs> vegetable. <laughs> this is this is battery acid on, you know, <laughs> on stale, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it has that like chilies, it suddenly becomes addictive. I don't know what it is. How'd it's, you eat it? To get yeah, it stir fried, um, you know, any just just yeah, like a zucchini, I guess, any way you want, really, mm. but um. It definitely suddenly it grows on you, mm. even though it, it, it's, its name is true. It is a bitter melon. Well, one sort of question I
0: wanted to yeah. um, poke away at a bit. If we're talking about bringing crops from other parts of the world sure. down to Melbourne and uh, growing them on, we are going to be using you know, greenhouses or potted environments, mm. trying to introduce heat in different environments. Do you see that long-term, through good breeding and selective breeding and so forth, that we could... You know, take something like ginger or taro and, and slowly convince it that Melbourne's its it's home and, all. you know, bit by bit you can take it out of the greenhouse. It might have a better response to winter conditions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the issue is that once upon a time we, as a country, we were very, you know, committed to agriculture in, in and around issues like breeding because that's what you're talking about in mm. the end. So you could do that. It's not going to happen kind of, you know, through osmosis sort of thing. No. You know, the plants no. aren't going to hop out and say, yeah, you know, it's, no, not it's okay, bad. it's okay here. <laughs> um so the short answer is that. I mean, I guess you could have backyard breeders, a sort of citizen science amateur um, mm. approach to that. Sure, I don't know that we have that culture at the moment, but it'd be good to get people to do that. Yeah. But the the kind of breeding of new varieties for our, for particularly for home garden gardeners is not. There's not much investment in that at the moment in yep. Australia. It's, that's the case. Okay. Um, but it has to be seen. Queensland, they because for sweet potatoes they they are looking at different varieties just to diversify the market for commercial farmers and they do bring material down from new guinea for example yep. and muck around with them. that's actually where i've got some of my varieties okay, through, cool. through queensland
2: and you are listening to in the apocalypse and we have been talking to chris williams about sweet potatoes and many other things including the novel crops project and the delight of growing unusual vegetables in your garden particularly perennials now Chris, I first met you um, many years ago when we were thinking about how to get more food growing in public spaces mm-hmm. for all of the benefits of uh, connecting with the seasons, connecting with where your food comes from, reviving gardening in the landscape um, getting kids enjoying eating food from, you know, public fruit trees. All of these fantastic things. And I have a quote from you, which I presume we must have said to Adam on the phone. Mm. One of my hobby horse is, is the reviving municipal gardeners. <laughs> so getting gardeners into public space. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. So, you know, teaching at Burnley, it's not just about urban agriculture. It's about our Urban green spaces generally, and you know, we we can show that once upon a time there used to be it used to be common site gardeners in in parks and gardens, mm. right? So uh, post Jeff Kennett, that decline it went to contractors, and I think generally speaking, you can say there's been a, a kind of decline in the quality of many of our parks, but perhaps that's you know debatable. But um, but I guess I kind of feel that you can't just leave it completely up to the community to manage, particularly. Uh, complex plantings like food plantings in public spaces and i sort of see that making public spaces more exciting by adding in that edible element is a good reason to you know to it helps excite the the few gardeners that are left as well so you can have a kind of you know activating public spaces with gardeners doing high quality work working with the community is just one kind of vision that i think would make our urban green space is more exciting and more usable at one element. because we have this huge agenda around urban greening that's going to solve mm. all our problems. All of them. All of them. Every single yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's. going and to... And it
2: ha- will solve many. And often. it will.
1: <laughs> but it's not. But honestly, in terms of what, the sort of graduates we produce at Burnley, it's not. It's not going to happen if you don't take care of the operational, the maintenance side, including the creative maintenance, the creative gardening part of it. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just. So think what that's happens
2: of, now? So councils. Um, maintenance regimes what does that look like at the moment
1: well i mean it you know it varies so i mean some some contractors do a fantastic job but it it tends to be the, the old dilemma was you would have the council gardeners you know and i i have friends and siblings who've worked in this area and you know sometimes the council gardeners don't you never used to do much <laughs> um you know we have all have stories but they often do fantastic work as well and so we've lost that to a degree, that, that sense of ownership of, of parks and gardens by, by the good old-fashioned municipal gardener. But in areas where they, they still exist, you, you do see high-quality work. So I've, I've had an ongoing relationship with the city of Greater Dandenong. I say that, emphasise that, because sometimes people think I'm working in the Danny Nongs, but I'm talking about Danny Danny Dandenong. Nong. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that mini-industrial rust belt that is actually... Having said that, it's still an amazing, vibrant, very ethnically diverse community, and they have gardeners, and they are super enthused by this stuff. And, they, I mean, they even do old-fashioned stuff like annual flower beds, right, which, yeah, right. which, strictly speaking from a sustainability point of view, is, is kind of high turnover, high input. But nonetheless, the public loves it. They yep. do it, um, and they enjoy it. And they're in the parks busy making the making gar- parks and gardens in Dandenong look more secure in a sense. But, look, they... Um, they started growing sort of uh, more sort of mainstream vegetables in some of these annual flower beds, had a great response to that. They gave the food to charity. Uh, the thing I like about Nong is that they tend not to be as risk-averse as some of our inner-city councils mm-hmm. who, although they're extremely green, when that's a good yeah. thing, yeah. Yet, sometimes it's just like, oh, my God. We can't grow we can't, a lemon tree <laughs> in case someone trips you, sorry, yeah. someone eats it and then there's a, something on it, like a slug or something, and they, they sue us. I'm sorry, Yarra, you'll be okay. We'll we'll get there in the end. (laughs) You'll grow up. So so Nong, the gardeners there uh, uh, sort of uh, had already done this kind of veggie gardening in public and I said, well, given that you've got this extraordinary ethnically diverse, well, the most ethnically diverse municipality in Victoria, why don't we grow some of these plants that, you know, perhaps we can assume might be popular? So we did. We grew sweet potatoes, taro, yams.
2: And where did you grow these?
1: So we grew it in a very old park from the 1870s, Nong Park, first of all. Had an absolutely massive harvest of sweet potatoes, um, made the local paper, and then because Dandenong is really trying to revitalise itself after the you know the, the kind of decline of the big manufacturers, and they've got a food strategy which really is looking at the amazing restaurants down there, the, the the fantastic market, and so they they kind of mentioned market gardens and and growing food in in public spaces. So we last year we or sorry this year we finally. Grew a big bed right outside the Dandenong market. we had a harvest in winter, early winter or probably late late may and um again, a just fantastic response from the public
2: and what was the structure of that? Was it maintained by the council or yeah. by the
1: community? no no, maintained by the council the high vees council gardeners yeah wow but the um so and and but many of those um, gardeners come from fiji or or you know cambodia or wherever right so it's already they're already diverse and that was really fantastic having them say wow this is something i never thought i'd see
2: Mm
1: -hmm. these plants from home growing in a public space in daniel yeah and
2: what was the feedback like from the community
1: it was really good and and including during the harvest the actual passers-by saying you know we've been watching this grow for the last six months and wondering whether we could take anything or not (laughs) um and um, I think the best thing for me was uh, two ladies from Ghana stopped and said, "So what are you?" And I was talking about eating the leaves of sweet potato earlier, and they said, "Well, what are you doing with the foliage?" And I said, "It's up to these these guys. They're just going to compost it all." And they said, "Well, we love the leaves, and they just took bags and bags full of the leaves to cook awesome. up." So the next step there is to kind of run gardening workshops like we did with the Carlton Neighbourhood Learning Centre, just to find out first of all what people are actually growing. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like the islander people are already growing taro and sweet potato. Mm. Um, they may not have access to all the different varieties that I've managed to dig up. But then to actually talk about some of these cultivation practices, just mm. to encourage people to, to – or just to help people realise they can grow this stuff.
2: It's interesting mm. the confusion um, mm. people find when they find food growing in public spaces. Yeah. With all of our 3,000 acres gardens – there, we had to be very clear with the signage, you know, saying, please, these are public gardens, yeah. participate, help yourself, yeah. take things. And we find it with food swaps as well. People will they'll bring loads and not take very much back. There seems to be a sort of generosity or um, spirit of looking after things when it comes to public gardening. Not very much vandalism, hardly any, in fact. Yeah, and, th- yeah just participation th- and th- joy.
1: In In Dandenong, they were surprised when they were doing their own um, beds of lettuce and chilies and corn. They were amazed how little was taken.
2: Mm-hmm. You know. So you've just come back from Brazil. Yes. Um, is there people growing pu- uh, food in public spaces out there? How does it compare?
1: Um, okay. So. <laughs> I mean, a place like Sao Paulo is a forest of giant apartments, mm. um, and you know it has some beautiful parks and gardens. But it's such a different, spatially so different from Melbourne. So they're really trying. So they have a, they have a similar thing of people, you know, kind of movement of guerrilla gardens and people forcing the issue, but they don't have that sort of tradition of planting out parks and gardens at the level of... I mean, Melbourne's a pretty horticulturally mad city, you know. The Garden State. It is. is, The place to to be. be. And the Garden State. But, yes, so so it's similar. But then, of course, you have poorer neighbourhoods and communities where there's been a real push to have community gardens. The huge difference there, though, in those communities is that instead of saying, we're going to have this kind of European-style allotment system, which is what we have, Mm. they kind of say, okay, who in the community comes from a farming or subsistence farming background? Who has the skills already? And the gardens that I've seen over the last two years they tend to let those people garden and then sell some of the produce and then but people then wander in and use the this sort of the space that's being managed by maybe one to five families as a kind of park mm. so you don't have the individual allotment, you have this kind of understanding that the people who are good at growing will do that, and some of these gardens were beautiful, yeah, yeah. Incredible.
0: And um, just looking at some of the notes here um, pre, pre-show, pre you're, yeah. you're saying there's a fairly strong middle-class permaculture movement in Brazil. <laughs> yeah. The uh, middle class have finally well, been infected.
1: Yes, and um, in fact, there's an Australian permaculturist. Uh, his name's Peter Webb, who's been in Brazil for I think a good 30 years. Yeah. And, and I've, I've sort of seen his influence uh, both amongst uh, you know, educated professionals but also in some of the um, uh, peri-urban areas with, with poor organic farmers. So... Mm. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I, I got to—I uh, was very privileged to have lunch with a sort of uh, rock star of this sort of, uh, let's call it, middle class yeah. food movement, Neji uh, Rico, who uh, is a cook, nutritionist, and a gardener, and um, has you know extraordinary following in Brazil. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think they're a bit like us. They've kind of suddenly said to themselves, "Hang on a second. We've inherited this landscape, and we've only had well, they've had it for 500 years, as it were. Uh, you know, in terms of dispossessing Indigenous people, yeah, a longer track record than us. But they've also started to say, we really need to engage with that that history, yeah, and start eating the things, or at least looking at the things that were traditionally grown by Indigenous people, yeah, yeah
0: incredible stuff um well we're running towards the tail end of the show and our guest this evening has been uh dr chris williams uh from burnley college who's been doing the uh the novel crops project and how can people follow up on
1: this chat and find out more about the project and uh, and get along and see what's happening so in about mid-december the friends of the burnley gardens will be having a general plant sale and um i'll be putting in some of uh, the plants that I've grown with my students in there, including sweet potato, some taro, uh, an edible hibiscus, yeah, with delicious cranberry hibiscus and a few other plants as well. Awesome. Yeah. I nearly wore my hibiscus
0: board shorts. That would have been it's perfect. The, the, uh, occasion. Though they, they make me look a little bit like uh, the, the angry Aussie on holiday in Bali, though, Jed, I didn't do it. I'm um, very glad. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's not a, a great look. Well, uh, Katie Dundas, awesome to catch up.
2: Yes, thank you. And lovely to see you again, Chris. Yeah, you too, CD, Kate. Thanks thank you very
0: much for being our guest this evening, Chris Williams. Thanks for being uh, the Chief Panel Beater and uh, Operations Tactician. My pleasure, and I'm just so glad you didn't wear those board shorts. <laughs> I'm going to wear them ASAP now. <laughs> <laughs> They're a terry-toweling too, I might oh, add. She yes. got the hat to go with them. Of course I have. <laughs> Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun.